this morning about uh, 8 o'clock, Bill McLeod went to be with the Lord. Bill McLeod was the leader of the Canadian revival that happened over 40 years ago. It happened when God spoke to Bill McLeod's heart and he said this. He said, Bill, when your prayer meeting crowd becomes bigger than your Sunday morning crowd, I'll send revival to the nation. And he did. What is sad for us today in the passing of Bill McLeod, a great leader of revival, is glory for him, for he's in the presence of his Lord. But I wonder if there's a church anywhere that would be willing to say, Lord, we want our prayer meeting crowd to be larger than our Sunday morning crowd because we know that maybe if we do that and get serious about seeking your face, that we could have revival. I don't know how you could read the headlines. I don't know how you could listen to the news. I don't know how you could walk the streets of a city and not know that we are a nation in need of God. We give him lip service, but we hate him. We hate him by our actions. We hate him by our indifference. We hate him by our lack of faithfulness. We hate him by not showing that we love him. And yet there's a promise in the word of God. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, only then, by the way, then, Will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land? What is it that characterizes revival? Well, in your notes, uh, J.I. Packer said that revival is God revitalizing his church. Revival is God turning his anger away from his church. Revival is God stirring the hearts of his people. Revival is God displaying the sovereignty of his grace. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 85 and verse 6, Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Here's what I want you to understand. God longs to share eternal realities with those who long to know him. It is not that God is indifferent. It is not that God is standing away from us. God longs to share eternal realities with those who long to know him. God is orchestrating events in our land today to call the remnant to greater prayer, to call the carnal to repent, to call the apathetic to get on fire, to call the church to be focused, to call the culture to be changed. I realize that I harp a lot on revival, and I'm going to keep doing it either until I breathe my last breath or until we see it, because we have not seen it. We've heard about it. We've talked about it. We've shown videos about it. Everybody in that video that you just saw died never seeing God send revival to this land, but longing and praying that it would happen. We need to tell the stories of God's faithfulness in the past because we need to remember lest we forget. We need to be reminded that God has blessed his people 
in times past with a great outpouring of his spirit and of his work. You want to know what to blame the problems of our society on? It is a prayerless church and a burdenless church that is keeping us from seeing a work of God in this land like he longs to do and like he has done in the past. Not very often do you see the word revival in the scriptures, but the principle is all through the scriptures. But here's what you do see. You see 40 specific times, at least 40 specific times, when God shows up in a season of refreshing and pours out his spirit on his people in such a way that something new and incredible and outstanding happens, which is referred to as a revival or as an awakening. A revival is what God does inside of a church. An awakening is what God does through a revived church, changing the society, changing the culture, changing the DNA of the conversations of a society. Revival and awakening begin when two things happen. Number one, when we rediscover or return to great truths about God. We have so diminished God in our society. Drunkards at ball games can sing God Bless America. But that's not a high and exalted view of God. When we return to great truths about God and when God finds people that are desperate to pray and seek his face. God is looking over this land. His spirit is moving across churches from the east coast to the west coast today, longing to find a praying people, longing to find a praying church, longing to find people that will say more than bless me and my family and I don't care what you do with anybody else. Longing to intervene for people that don't even know how to pray for themselves, that won't pray for themselves. When revivals and awakening happens, several things begin to happen. Number one, there is a revitalized church. If we were in revival, there would not be an empty seat in this room. If we were in revival, we would have hundreds of people standing outside hoping that they would get a chance to get in. Hundreds of us walked in late today because we don't care whether we have revival or not. The reason we come late is because we want God to work on our timetable. God's not interested in your timetable. He could care less about it. God's interested in you getting on his timetable. You see, a revitalized church will make a difference. When I sit in a church two Sundays ago and I preach and then I go to the 12 o'clock service to listen to the choir and I have to sit on the floor by the guitar player because there's not a seat in a 3,900 seat building and a thousand people are across the street in children's church and 800 are across the street because they couldn't get in and there's not an empty seat anywhere in that room. I'm saying that church has got a better chance of revival than we do. I'll tell you, it's easy for Sherwood to strut. We got nothing to strut about. It's easy for us to pat ourselves on the back and say we're the biggest church in Albany, Georgia. We got the most people. We've done this and we've done that. We've gone here and we've gone there. It's easy for us to do that. Can I tell you something? God's not impressed. 
We have 1,500 members that aren't here today. God is not impressed with us. In fact, he's nauseated by us because the scripture says would define us as lukewarm. Because when you're hot, everybody's hot. When you're cold, everybody's cold. But when some are lukewarm, they bring the whole temperature of the church down to a level below where God wants it. Secondly, the impact on societal issues. We're big in this day on helping society and feeding the homeless, which we do every week, and helping the poor, which we do, and ministering to the community, which we do. But can I tell you that every great change in society, everyone, except for the time of change with the great society under Lyndon Johnson. Every great change in society for the last 2,000 years has happened in the context of revival and awakening. The end of, of child labor abuse, the end of slavery, the establishment of the Salvation Army, the establishment of the China Inland Mission, uh, all the things that have happened that have made society better have happened in the environment of revival. It has not happened because some congressman from some district made a motion and set a law in place in Congress. It's happened when God's people have impacted the culture in ways that they weren't impacted impacting the culture before. God changes a society. Thirdly, a spirit of unity within the body of Christ. There are no longer racial divides and, and uh, cultural divides and denominational divides. When God is working in revival, we see each other as one in Christ. We don't look at the outside, we look at the heart. We don't look at where we might have minor differences with somebody on some minor theological point or preference. We start looking at the big picture of God is at work and we are under his authority. Fourthly, there are negative reactions and excesses. People are afraid to lose control. One of the reasons that Southern Baptists are shrinking, not growing, shrinking. 800 churches close every year. One of the reasons we're shrinking is we've got too many people that want to be in power in the church because there's nobody in the community. And they want to strut and strut their money and strut their power and try to run and control a church that is supposed to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. But God can't get in the door of some churches. You see, there'll be people that will oppose it. There'll be people that will resist it. There'll be people that will be afraid that they'll lose control. There'll be people that will worry about the excesses. I, I remember, I can still remember in this church like it was yesterday when, when Danny Baxter was minister of music and, and this was like 1990. And he said, if you want to raise your hand, you can. And I'm telling you, a member came to me and said, we're going to become charismatics. Y'all just raise your hand just to tick somebody off, all right? Just... <laughs> Hey, I'm like Vance Havner. I'd rather calm down a fanatic than breathe life into a corpse. Amen. There'll be people that think, oh, things are going to happen. We're, we're not going to know what's going to happen. You're right, because then we're not in control anymore. God is in control, and, and there can be excesses of emotion that have no basis in Scripture. I would rather deal with that than try to wake up people that can't stay awake in a sermon. 
The revival meetings of Wesley and Whitfield, they were great displays of emotion and of power and unusual events. In the Cane Ridge revival, people were affected physically. Sometimes the revivals are more lay-led than others. Sometimes they're called prayer revivals. But they're all the result of a church being revived and confronting a culture. In the, Reform in the Reformation, there was a restoration of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by paying off a priest and not by offering offerings and not by doing indulgences, but just simply you come to Jesus by grace through faith. In the first great awakening, there was a restored emphasis on the Great Commission. In the second great awakening in the 1800s, there's, there was a renewal of interest in what was going on in society. And as I've already mentioned, more changed in those days. By the way, the Civil War ended slavery, but I want to tell you the move of God, if you study history, the move of God was bringing slavery to an end in the 1850s because God had already orchestrated that that was going to happen. It began by God's people seeing people as people, Amen. not as property. J. Edwin Orr defined revival as a movement of the Holy Spirit, bringing about a revival of New Testament Christianity in the Church of Christ and the related community. Arthur Wallace said this, Revival is such a display of God's holiness and power that often human personalities are overshadowed and human programs abandoned. It is God breaking into the consciousness of men in majesty and glory. What circumstances will lead to the need for revival? We're going to be in 2 Chronicles 28 through 32. And I'm going to read some of this, but I'm going to use pockets of it to summarize this whole story. This is the story of Ahaz, the king, the king of the southern kingdom. The kingdom has already been divided. Ahaz was a wicked, evil idolater who sat on the throne before God's people, but led them into idolatry and sin. The social problems of that day were caused by the sin problems that began at the throne room of the king of the southern kingdom. In 2 Chronicles chapter 28 in verse 1. By the way, this will be a good reminder. Don't ever name a child Ahaz. <laughs> Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Israel had already gone into idolatry. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in fire. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. It's not that this man was ignorant. There were prophets, there were priests, there was a temple. It's not that he was ignorant of the things of God. It's that he chose to walk away from the things of God. He forsook the Lord. I don't need to tell you how much America needs revival today. 
The comparisons between Israel at this time and America are frighteningly real. And there's no hope for revival if we don't change, but we've got to get desperate for it. There are so many parallels to what happens in a time when a nation goes in bondage and what is happening today. As someone who minored in history in college, I can tell you that the parallels between nations that fall and come under captivity and judgment and destruction and what has happened in our nation in the last 50 years are riding the same track toward a cliff that we will not be able to stop unless there's revival. We can't spend our way out of it. We can't legislate our way out of it. The only way we're going to get out of it is revival. Now, a quick overview of the life will reveal there's one issue here, and that's idolatry, molten images. Now, the the Jews had gotten so far away from God that they are worshiping Baal as God, a false God, a God that they were supposed to kick out, destroy all the high places that were built to Baal. All of those were supposed to be gone, and now they're back in the land. Look again at verse 3. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Behinnom and burned his sons in the fire. Moloch was a heathen god of fire. Now, it's not that the pagans, listen, it's not that the pagans were offering their children in fire. It's that God's people were doing it. The people going to the temple, the people offering the sacrifices, now they're hedging their bets and say, well, you know, we may better do something to try to appease this God of fire. And so they would take their children and throw them into the fire to try to appease a God that wasn't even a God. Aren't we doing that? I ask you a question, aren't we doing that? No, we're not really doing that because we've taken 60 million of our babies that have never gotten through the birth canal and put them in the garbage dump. Aren't we throwing our kids in the fire when we let them get on a computer and we don't know what they're doing? Aren't we throwing our kids in the fire when we let them play violent video games and get all their adrenaline rushing because how many people they can kill when they're eight and nine years old? Aren't we throwing our kids in the same fire trying to appease their appetites for entertainment? Aren't we throwing them in the fire? Why should God let us off the hook? Because there are moms and dads in this room, you might as well go and throw your kids in a fire as what you're letting them do under your watch. Don't come to the church asking for help when what you've been doing is pouring gas on the fire. And say, now, now we want the youth minister, and we want the children's minister, we want the pastor, we want y'all to fix the problems with our kids, and then you go home and pour gasoline on them and throw a match on them. Because you don't know how to adjust, you don't know how to discipline, you don't know how to love with discipline, you don't know how to correct, because you're more concerned about your kids being happy than going to heaven. Here's the problem. 
He did not know the Lord. By the way, this valley of Behinnon, that's the valley of Gehenna, which sits on the south side of Jerusalem, where Jesus looked at and referred to hell as like the valley of Gehenna, where trash burns and it never stops burning. And so they were burning their children, destroying their future. Are we not destroying our future today? Are we not destroying our future for our children by squandering the blessings of God, by ignoring the goodness of God? It would shock us if somebody walked into Albany, Georgia and built a fire in downtown and threw a child on it, we would all be appalled. But we are in many ways doing the same thing. But ours is covered up by, well, it's entertainment. And that's their privacy. I don't want to invade my child's privacy. Hey, invade it. It's your house. They're under your roof. It's your electricity. Invade the stinking room. Second Chronicles 28, 19. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. See, it only takes one man that turns his back on God, and God says, I'm going to humble that nation for that. For he had brought about, notice this, verse 19, you need to underline it. He had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. The picture of that word, lack of restraint, is a picture of somebody running naked. All the barriers are off, all the clothes are off, all the coverings are off, all the protection is off. This is somebody running wild like an animal. He threw off all restraint. He was unfaithful to the Lord. Not only that, they were in trouble with the military and with the diplomatic corps. Verse 5 of chapter 28, go back up. Whenever the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Armand, And they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel who inflicted him with heavy casualties. You know, you would think when a number of people were taken into captivity that the king would say, maybe what I'm doing is not working. You would think with a number of failed policies that our government has, somebody would stand up and say, this ain't working. But we're too arrogant to do that. Verse verse 8, the sons of Israel carried away captives of their brethren, 200,000 women, sons, and daughters. And they took also a great deal of spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Verse 16, at that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. Let me just update that. Let's go try to make all the people in the Middle East like us. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. And the Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland and the Negev of Judah. Verse 22, now in the time of his distress, this same King Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. I mean, you know, you got to ask yourself the question, what does it take for a guy to wake up? But are we any different? You look at where your retirement fund is today from where it was 10 years ago. 
and you're just praying at the same level you were 10 years ago. You're not praying any differently. You're not thinking any differently. You're not more faithful knowing that the bottom has fallen out on everything that you've trusted in and hoped in. You're not praying any differently, longing for any more, crying out to God. At the time of his distress, he was more unfaithful for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Oh, we do that. Pardon me while I'm messing your business for a minute. We do that. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Yeah, I'd like three lottery tickets and two scratch-offs. Because that's, that's my source. You see, when you play the lottery, what you're saying is, is that a world system is your source, not God. And if you want the world system to be your source, how's that working for you right now? 14% unemployment may be higher if we got honest about the unemployment numbers. Amen. A housing market that's in the dumps. I saw a house this week in California sitting on a golf course, and uh, the guy that was with me said, you see that house right there? There's a compound there. There's a house in front. There's two houses in back. The guy's selling it for $100 million. I said, where do I make the down payment? <laughs> he said he's got to sell it because he can't afford it anymore. He said, this guy was before the crash worth $3 billion. He said, if he can sell the house, he may be worth $200 million by the time it's over. You say, well, I'd like to be worth $200 million. Can you imagine being so caught up in money that you're worth $3 billion and by unwise decision-making, offering to the gods of this world, what the gods of this world give that guy is $2.8 billion in losses. By the way, what God has given to us is $16 trillion in debt because we don't give to him. Now, nothing this king tried worked. Nothing. Terrorists come, people are taking captive, he's offering sacrifices, he sacrificed his own sons that he's held in his hands as baby to false gods, and nothing is working. Look at verse 22. In the time of his distress, the same king became yet more unfaithful. Now here's a principle that you need to learn and you need to mark it down. This is as true as an atomic clock. If you turn from God, God will turn from you and your friends and your enemies will turn on you. Are we not seeing that in our land today? Nations that used to, nations that we delivered from the Nazis hate us. Nations that we have protected hate us. Mark it down. All the wars we fought, you better know where you're going if you go to Vietnam or Korea today. You better know where you're going if you go to Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq today. You better know where you're going if you go to Egypt or Syria. A pastor was pulled off of a bus in Egypt without his diabetic medicine and taken captive by extremists. You better know where you're going because if you turn from God, God will turn from you and your friends and your enemies will turn on you. 
Listen, folks, the sad reality is the only friend we've got in this world is the nation of Israel. And we don't even treat them like they're our friends. That's the only friend we've got. England doesn't care about us. France doesn't care about us. Germany doesn't care about us. Greece doesn't care about us. Italy doesn't care about us. Japan doesn't care about us. We've saved more bacon than we can ever count, and nobody even likes us. You know why? It's not because of who's president. It's because we've turned our back on God. And God has turned his back on us and turned our friends and our enemies against us. Does that bother you? Is it going to change the way you pray? Is it going to change the way you think? What can give us hope? It says the Lord humbled Judah. God allowed this. God is allowing. He is not orchestrating sin. Don't get me wrong. God is not orchestrating sin, but he is orchestrating that the sin we have chosen will run its course. That we will bear the consequences of our actions because of our inability to look to God for help. He was getting them to the point where they would turn from their wicked ways and seek his face. And following Ahaz, who is as lousy a king as there was in all of Israel, following Ahaz, which is, is a king we will look at next week, is one called Hezekiah, who brought great revival and reform. Probably the greatest revival in all the history of the Old Testament happened with the son he didn't burn, Hezekiah. So the question I have for you today is, how desperate are you? I see little desperation today. I wrote a book, The Power of Desperation, because God began to show me that only in desperation does he work. As long as we're self-sufficient and self-satisfied, God will leave us to our own devices. And that's why we're in the mess we're in today. But i got to tell you something. I am not without hope. Amen. If I were, I would quit. But I'm not without hope. Because a lot of what is happening in America today sounds like England at the time just before the Great Awakening. In 1661 to 1665, the Parliament of England began to legislate the erosion of spiritual life and anything related to the Puritans. Parliament passed four edicts, which actually in the 1600s, this is the same time when the King James Bible is being printed in the language of the people. Parliament was legislating the end of Christianity in England, and it led to the Great Awakening. So I have hope. Let me give you four things that they did. First of all, the Corporation Act of 1661 eliminated any Puritan political influence. This is what it would mean. It would mean that the Congress of the United States would legislate that no religious organization, no nonprofit organization that bared the name of Jesus Christ or promoted godliness would be allowed to function in any way or talk to any legislator or write a letter to the president 
to do anything to stand against the erosion of our society. That's exactly what Parliament did in 1661. The Act of Uniformity in 1662, the prayer book of England was revised, watered down. 2,000 clergymen were kicked out of the Church of England because of their stance on the authority of the Word of God. The Convention Act of 1664 forbade that an evangelical could meet in homes with more than five people. By the way, some of you are sitting there like you think, well, that is so long ago and that's so far off. Anybody see about the pastor that got arrested for having a Bible study in his home in America? Is there anything different from that? By the way, that's the exact same law that Castro has in Cuba today. The exact same law. You cannot gather with more than five people. Maybe it's eight. Used to be 20 and he kept lowering it because people kept coming. They legislated that you could not meet. That means that not one Sunday school class in this church could have a fellowship in your home and talk about the Lord. If you got in your home and talked about God and had a prayer of blessing over the food, the government could come and arrest you and take you to jail for assembling in a religious meeting. That would mean that none of us could ever meet again. This would be our last worship service. If they could legislate that in the wake of the publishing of the King James Bible, don't you think that can be done here? Are you awake yet? Oh, there's one more. And that is the Five Mile Act of 1665. Nonconformist, in other words, people that didn't do what the government said, could not build a church within five miles of any town. Do you know how hard it is for a church to get a building permit in America today? Do you know how hard it is? I'll tell you how hard it is. There's still a battle going on where the churches can rent out schools in New York. Because in New York, they don't think they need God. And they don't think they need churches. And in New York, I think the ratio is one church for every 75,000 people in New York City. All of this could happen before you breathe your last breath. All of this is possible before you breathe your last breath. The only good news we have is that out of that, the people who loved God started praying and God sent revival. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Mom and dad, grandparent, teenager, I just want to ask you a question. What's it going to take for you to wake up and be desperate? Because if you're not willing to do it on your own, if you're not burdened to do it now, I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God, I promise you, God will orchestrate circumstances in this nation that will bring us not to our knees, but to our face on the ground, weeping that we let it happen under our watch. Amen. By the way, we're in more trouble than you think. Are you keeping up? 
when a man who owns a family-owned business simply says, I believe in the biblical definition of marriage, and mayors rise up and say, I don't want you to build in my town, does that not grieve your heart? I don't, I'm not talking about yelling at the television. I'm not talking about, but I am saying this, pray and eat Chick-fil-A out of every piece of chicken they got this Wednesday. We are in a land, ladies and gentlemen, where godly men like Truett Cathy and Dan Cathy and Bubba Cathy are treated with disdain because they believe the things that have been taught by the Word of God for thousands of years. And when the director of public relations for Chick-fil-A dies this week, there are lesbians and gays and people boycotting that are saying such profane and vile things on blogs and on the internet about that man that it is, it's repugnant. It stinks. That's not flesh. That's demonic. We are in a battle with the demonic. And you and I are just going to walk out of this building and go about our business because we're not desperate yet. We're not desperate yet. I'm telling you, we got to love people that aren't lovable. We got to love people who hate us. But that only begins in prayer. That only begins in prayer. I sat in church last Sunday morning in San Francisco. And a man who is in the process of becoming a woman sat on the row right in front of me, one seat over and in front of me. First time to ever visit the church. Now, I've been in some churches where, and some of you probably would have this attitude, you'd get up and move. But how's that person ever going to come to know Jesus if we don't show them Jesus? I mean, I'm, I don't approve of the lifestyle. But I'm going to tell you, if we're going to change this world, we're going to have to reach some people that don't act like us and look like us. And they need Jesus before they need to be told about their lifestyle. Is They need to know they need Jesus. But we're not going to have a concern for them. In fact, we're just going to look at them and say, y'all can all go to hell. We don't care. Until, until, until we get the heart of God. Because God loves Sodom and Gomorrah so much that he said, if you can get it down to 10, I'll save it. I wonder what we got to get it down to in America before God saves it. I wonder what we've got to do before God saves it. Men and women, don't be on your deathbed apologizing to your kids that you didn't care about revival and that you didn't care about awakening and you didn't care about God moving in this land. Don't get to the end of your life and think about all the things you could have done and should have done and would have done if you just had a heart for God and been concerned about the things that God wanted you to be concerned about. Don't miss the window that God is giving us. Don't miss the moment. Don't miss the opportunity that God is giving us to cry out to Him, to call out to Him, to plead before Him to save our land and to heal our land. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land and forgive their sin. God has so much he wants to do with us and through us. God has so much he wants to say to us. God has a work that he wants to do in us, but our hearts have to be broken. We have to be crying out to God. We have to be pleading before God that he would save our land from our self-destructive ways. I want to ask you, while many are already at the altar and many are making their way here, I'm going to ask you just to stand where you are. If you can physically, if you can't get to the front, if you can turn your seat into a place of prayer, into an altar before God and call out to God for him to heal our land, to forgive us of our sin, to take the stench of our sin and our apathy away from him, that the aroma of the praise and the prayers of God's people would be pleasing in his sight. So you just pray right now. Just talk to the Lord right now. And then I'm going to close our prayer time in just a moment.